make me a promise this morning. I'm going to tell you a very embarrassing story. And yet you're going to have to make sure that you never talk about it again. So when I was younger, so probably starting around second, third grade, I became a very, very big professional wrestling fan. And that lasted well into high school. In high school, there was a girl by the name of Stacy. Her and I became very good friends. She was one of the handful of Christians in my public school. We spent a lot of time together, so much so that some people thought that we were dating when we were not. And the suggestion was made that maybe we should. And so I worked up to confidence one day. was over at her house. She was cleaning out her pool. I think it was towards the end of the school year. And uh, we were talking, and I, you know, I made my move. I asked her out. And she said no. Now, because of her personality, it wasn't weird or awkward. We continued to being friends until we graduated. And uh, since then, I've really not spoken to her. But I remember about a year later, we're about to graduate. And uh, we, I think we were milling about, perhaps, at a graduation party. And, and I said to her, she was off to some school somewhere, and I was off somewhere. And I said to her, boy, we really get along, so why did you say no? She's like, I could not see myself living with somebody who wanted to be a professional wrestler. I I, I laugh at that now. For the next few weeks, I want to spend, or perhaps for most of the summer, I want to spend some time in Psalm 119. Now, for transparency's sake, let me tell you, I have done this study twice before. Uh, the first time was actually the first year I was here. I did it on a Wednesday night uh, with a handful. Uh, and then about two years ago, in our uh, Wednesday afternoon, our 3 o'clock Bible study, uh, we did it in North Platte. Now, the reason I'm coming back to it is, of course, the majority of you have not heard this. But also because every time I come to this psalm, I learn something. It is rich and it is full. You know, the psalm is typically known for two reasons. The first is that it is what? It is the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, the second reason it's known is because of how organized it is. It is an acrostic. It uses uh, the Hebrew alphabet, so A, B, C, D, A for apple, B for banana, that kind of acrostic. Uh, and that's how he builds Psalm 119. And so those two things are why it's uh, mes- uh, rememberable. Now, the first time I encountered, really, Psalm 119, really understood what it was, was years ago, the church that my family attended put out a challenge. If you could memorize Psalm 119, I think you got about three helps, you could get a trophy and $100. So one Sunday night, uh, three people got up to try and save it. Two failed, one succeeded. The one that succeeded was my sister. And so she brought home this trophy and her $100, and she waved it in my face as much as she could. Now, I've suggested this a couple of times for a one or a Sunday school. It's like, maybe we should put that out there. Maybe we should say $100 to the first kid who, uh, who memorizes Psalm 119. We haven't done that yet. I'm thinking maybe when my kid's a little bit older, I'll, I'll put that challenge to them. Uh, it's a wonderful psalm, not just because it's long, uh, because it has a lot of truth to it. The book of Psalms is organized into five sections. If you didn't know this, those five sections actually form a sort of a story. Section number one is about the king who failed. So God had made kings, and we know the history of Israel. He put kings 
uh, on the throne in Israel, and they failed. Section 2 of the book of Psalms is how the people failed. And we know that story too. We know that we look at Judges, and we look at Ruth, and we look at the kings and uh, the history of the God's people, and we see examples where God's people failed. That section of the book of Psalms is more of a, a reflection on that idea. But then we get to the third section, and we get to the idea of the God, ungodly are winning. The lack of hope. It, does, it seems like the ungodly have run the place over. And I wonder, if our, it's, I wonder to myself, if we were to think about where we were as a country in the book of Psalms, I'm thinking that's where we are. But then section four of the book of Psalms is about the fact that God is in control. He is sovereign. And so when this situation comes, the king has failed, the people have failed, the ungodly seem to have the run of the place. We're reminded in section four of of the book of Psalms that God is in control. And then the last section, section five, where we find Psalm 119, it is about the arrival of God's solution. Most of the rest of the psalm in the fifth section of the book of Psalms are a lot of praise. And the praise is for the fact that God has answered. He's been there. He has provided the solution. And as I said, Psalm 119 is part of this fifth section. Psalm 119 is a conversation between a believer and God. It takes place over the course of the believer's life. Meaning at the beginning of the psalm, after the introduction... We find a young believer. He's young in life. He's new in life. Uh, And by the time we get to the end of the psalm, we find the old believer and the things he has learned as he has walked with God. So this is a real life talking to a real God over the course of a whole life. Now, we don't have a subscript. What I mean by that is we don't know who wrote it. Now, there are a small band of scholars who believe, and I kind of agree with them, there's a small band of scholars that believe that this is a psalm written by Daniel. And the reason they think that is because there are a number of places in this psalm that kind of coordinate with things that were going on in Daniel's life. Now, we have no proof of that. I can't tell you that, uh, you know, affirmatively. But the evidence is there. I see the evidence. I have some scholarship to back me up. So that's kind of how I read the psalm. The first eight verses are the introduction. It is to tell us everything about the psalm before we get into it. And really what we find are three questions. He lays out before us, first of all, what is the goal of walking with God? When I walk with God, where where am I trying to get to? The second question, how do I get there? So what's the path of walking with God? And then lastly, what am I to expect as I walk with God? So that's what these first eight verses are going to cover. So I have three points for you, kind of following those three ideas. Number one, number one, the goal with God is to be perfectly holy. The goal with God is to be perfectly holy. I want you to note the psalm begins with a benediction. Blessed is the person who is blameless or undefiled. Blessed is the person who keeps, seeks, walks in the way of the Lord. He is laying out this is the goal. This is the highest idea. It is an idea of totality. What I mean by that is this. It means your speech, the way you live, the kind of things you buy, the, uh, the kind of things you think. You can think of it this way. You say, blessed is the man 
who is not defiled by unclean speech. Blessed is the man who does not have unclean motives. Blessed is the man who can think about his enemy and not have unclean thoughts. The highest idea, the highest goal, the thing he's aiming for is absolute, perfect, moral purity. It's what's getting him excited. The, uh, the emphasis in these words is, is one of excitement. I'm going to walk with God and I'm going to have moral purity. And he means it all the way down to your bones. What do I mean by that? Have you ever had the experience where you got into your car to take a drive to a place you've been to many times? And then you arrive at the place you've been to many times and you think, I don't remember ever stopping, turning, doing anything. I'm just here. So much of who we are is very rhythmic. We have a rhythm to our life. We typically get up at the same time. We eat the same things. We go to the places at the same time. We see the same people. So what he's saying is the goal here is to be perfectly holy all the way down to even the parts of you that are the rhythm parts, the parts you don't even think about. The moral purity through and through. Now consider for a moment the people of Jeremiah in Isaiah's day. We find in the Bible, the Bible says, oh, they went to the temple. That's great. When they went to the temple, they heard the word preach. That's great. They gave their sacrifices for sins. They gave their sacrifices of thanks. They gave their sacrifices of worship. But the Bible says their heart was far from God. So the idea is they were defiled by their motivation. So they didn't do it. The idea is then if you go to Jesus... And when he would interact with the Pharisees, here is a group that would fast and they'd pray, they'd keep the Sabbath, they'd wash their hands. But Jesus described them as what? Whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. You see, and what he would point out over the course of his ministry would be that they were right in some ways and wrong in others. They did not ever keep it perfectly he says there, he, he says, you have to exceed what they do. And if we look at the, the application of that, we understand that, that when Jesus preaches, he preaches the same thing. We look at the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed, blessed, blessed. And he goes further into the sermon, he talks about what God's standards are. If you hate your brother, you have murdered him. And as I said, he gets to the point where he says that the righteousness you have the holiness you have has to exceed the Pharisees, the most moral and devout people there were at the time. He says, you've got to go further. Now understand, what has been the standard of holiness? Well, we've always been told the same thing from the beginning of our Bible. Perfect moral purity is to love God and to love your neighbor. To love God and love your neighbor. It's just really that simple. There are some out there who have always thought that, that moral purity is something super spiritual. In fact, we have examples of this in our New Testament. We have those who thought to themselves that moral purity was found in what they did and did not eat. Moral purity was found in the days or the days they did not celebrate. Some thought that moral holiness or this pure holiness came because they knew about angels and demons. 
The answer, the goal here of moral purity is to love God perfectly and to love your neighbor perfectly. And what we find here is an axiom, if you want to put it that way. If you want to summarize these first three verses, he would say it this way. Holiness equals happiness. Holiness, perfect holiness equals happiness. Let me ask you a question. How many things do we encounter in our life that make the promise to make us happy? When you're a young man, young woman, you look to the boy or girl, and you think, if I could get married, I'm going to be what? I'm going to be happy. If I can make six figures, what am I going to be? I'm going to be happy. If they have triple chocolate moose tracks at Walmart today, I'm going to be what? I'm going to be happy. Right? We have lots of things in our life that we go and we say, this is going to make us happy. And then they don't. The psalmist is saying in these first three verses, he's saying, holiness equals happiness. Now, what's the objection? How do we respond in our heart to this? Because the psalmist knows it and he's going to, he's going to get there. But let's just ask the question, how do we respond to this? Who could do this? Who could do this? Who could love God and love their neighbor perfectly? Who could be like this? And those are good questions. And he's going to answer them. But I think right now in these first three verses, the thing is we're supposed to feel the weight. The goal with God is moral purity, holiness, perfection. That's where you're going. Number two, so if that's where we're going, how do we get there? The way, the way with God is perfect obedience. The way with God is perfect obedience. If we're going to get to where God is going or where God wants us to go, we have to travel the path of perfect obedience. Verse 4, he says, God has commanded us to keep his precepts diligently. Now, as I was studying this this week, I thought, of all the places I've ever preached, of all the places I have talked about this psalm, these people are going to get this. Why do I say that? Because for the majority of you, your life is about diligence. What do I mean by that? For most of you, you have to get up every day. If you don't get up every day and you don't check cows, something could go wrong. If you don't get up in every day and you don't take care of the equipment, something could go wrong. If you don't make sure that things are the way they're supposed to be, something could go wrong. And guess what? It doesn't matter what the weather is, does it? It does not matter if it is your birthday, does it? It does not matter how you're feeling that morning. Maybe you're a little down in the mouth. It doesn't matter. You have to go. That's the idea of diligence here. God has commanded us to keep his precepts diligently. It is the idea of eliminating any possible sort of hit and miss any sort of lag or laziness. It is supposed to be the way of life. Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Several times he will say to his disciples, keep my commandments. But what he was not looking for was robotic service. He was saying to them, if you want to walk with me, if you want to abide in Christ, if you want to know God, 
the requirement here is perfect obedience. In fact, in 1 John, we're told, this is how you know that you know him. If you're very struggling with doubt, he says, this is how you know that you know him, that you're striving to keep his commandments. But I want you to note here, the command says we are to keep thy precepts diligently. We are not called to come up with more precepts. This was the problem with the Pharisees. Jesus would say, you were adding weight where God added no weight. He would say, you were binding people up where God did not bind them up. They were not satisfied with the commands found in Scripture, so they came up with their own. But the idea here is we are commanded to keep thy precepts diligently. So several things to consider. First of all, you cannot be obedient by accident. You cannot be obedient by accident. Left to yourself, you will not obey. We will not obey. We will lie when we think it's going to get us a better result. We will grow bitter instead of forgiving. We will compromise instead of holding fast and apparently feeling like we might look foolish. We do not do these things by accident. Another idea here is clearly it's meant to understand that this is a duty. It is not a hobby. It is not something to be taken up and then put down and then taken up again. And too long or too many times I have seen this in Christians' lives. They are diligent at one point in their life to come to church, diligent to volunteer to help, diligent to participate in fellowship. And it doesn't take a trauma. It doesn't take a tragedy. Just the passing of time. And suddenly, something catches their attention. Slowly, it's one Sunday missed. No longer volunteering. No longer sticking around for fellowship. And you see in their life, they take up Christ and they put him down again. They take up Christ and they put him down again. They take up Christ and then they put him down again. But that's not what's being commanded here. The command, as I said, is to keep his precepts. Now, our culture right now has given in to the temptation to think that we are allowed to name our sins and to have our own commandments. And we do this. Let's just be honest. We think to ourselves, yes, God has commanded us to love our enemies, but he certainly doesn't mean that one. For some of us, the idea is the issue we have with God's precepts themselves. What I mean by that is this. I watch sometimes as people in their lives, they'll look where God has set up a 10-foot fence to keep you from falling off the cliff. And they say, that's great. And then what I watch them do is they proceed to build a 20-foot fence in front of God's 10-foot fence. And their conclusion is that if I have a 20-foot fence in front of that 10-foot fence, that must mean I'm more obedient, more perfect, more spiritual. But what happens is over time we then begin to define sin not by what God has said in the 10-foot wall, but by our 20-foot wall. But our command is to keep his precepts. But then we understand this is where the temptation is, isn't it? Isn't this the first temptation? Did God really say that? Is this really his command? Boy, are we good at justifying our sins. 
we can find the top 10 reasons why God's commandment to ask and seek forgiveness doesn't apply to us. We can tell ourselves, you know what, my circumstances mean that God's command to love my neighbor is not one he expects me to obey. Children do this, right? Any of you who have raised kids have seen this. Mom and dad can sit down a child and say, don't do it. And 20 minutes later, what do they do? They do it. Somebody knows. How does that happen? As a parent, why are you pulling your hair out? I just told you. Don't do it. (laughs) What happens in a child's mind? (laughs) Well, what I hear from my kids at least. Oh, I didn't think you meant that when we had the lights off. I didn't think you meant that because it was Thursday. Oh, I thought you were talking to them because they're horrible. What are they doing in their little minds? Did mom and dad really say? But once again, we have the question, don't we? Who can do this? Who can travel down this road? Who can be this diligent? And they're, they're valid questions. And once again, though, the psalmist is not ready to answer them. He wants us to feel the weight. The weight of the fact that where we're going is perfect holiness. Well, who can accomplish that? The path we have to follow is perfect obedience. Who can go that way? Feel it. But then we come to number three. Our experience is full of failure and sorrow. Psalmist is just going to be honest. This psalm starts with this incredible excitement. I'm going to walk with God. And I'm going to be obedient. And then we start getting into the actual uh, life living. Verse 5 begins with this sigh of regret. Oh, that I would keep your commands. He longs for it. It's a cry of weakness, a cry of help. If I was simply steadfast in keeping your statutes. He's borne out the truth. He knows that holiness equals happiness. He knows the commands have to be kept perfectly. And he finds himself in a place where he says, Oh, I can't do this. Can't do this. But I want you to note here, the prayer that he prays to God is not for enabling. The prayer he prays here is for direction. He's praying for the right direction. I want you to understand why that is significant. He's not just saying to God, I am unable. I can't do it. He's saying to God, I don't even know how. I don't know what road to go down. In the book of Proverbs, for example, we have several passages that use this illustration. For one, the young man is told, you know where the adulterous woman lives. You know her address. Don't go down that road. Find a different block to cross the street. Don't go past your house. Find a different way to go. In both Proverbs and Psalms, we're told that we can't walk on the path of the wicked without falling into the same things that they do. We think, right? All right, maybe I don't have the motor for this. 
Maybe, maybe I don't have the strength for this. But you know what? If, if we were on a boat with God, we think, well, God's going to have to run the engine. At least I can steer. And the psalmist is saying, no, you can't. You, don't, you can't even do that. In verse 6, he says, shall I, 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 then shall I not be put to shame? The idea there is this. He has. He has felt shame. He has gone off the path. He has missed the goal. And shame can be debilitating. He's not even making the promise it's never going to happen again. He has experienced shame. Verse 7, we get another result. He says, if I could only get the help, if I could only do this right, then I could praise you with an upright heart. And here he's confessing, he's admitted to this. He has gone to the house of God, he has sang the songs, he has done the worship, and he has played the hypocrite. He has not been upright. His heart was not upright. He was just playing the part. He came and pretended right along with everybody else. And then verse 8, he cries out again, Do not forsake me. Lord, don't give up on me. Lord, don't give up on me. He's understanding that if God did not give him the help, if God does not give him the direction, the only result is going to be calamity. He will not endure. He will feel overwhelmed, and when he feels overwhelmed, he will act foolishly. I cannot do this, God. Please do not forsake me. So notice, starting in verse 1, now we're at verse 8. We started way on top of a mountain of great uh, triumph. I am going to walk with God. And I am going to get to holiness. And I am going to be obedient. And now we have gone down the mountain. And where do we find ourselves? We started perhaps in this place of euphoria. Maybe you've had that experience. Maybe you've heard a sermon. Maybe you've gone to a conference. Maybe you've read a good book. And you find yourself, God's amazing. And I'm going to do this. And then we go down the path of life. And we get knocked around a little bit. And maybe the first couple of knocks don't do anything. But then the wind really starts to blow. And we come face to face with weakness. And we can't do it. We can't be perfect. And so we become ashamed of ourselves. We have all this knowledge. We know all of these things. And then we fold like an accordion when the first big thing hits us. Now, if you've ever had that experience, and I know everybody here has, don't be quiet. I can tell you there are people who are sitting in this room who have given in to thinking, I'm the only one who's ever done this. I should know better. I've had people well into their 70s and 80s come to me and say, Pastor, I should have known better but I did it anyways. But that brings me to something else. Asking for help is native to the Christian life. What I mean by that is it is expected. I can tell you as your pastor, as I talk with Christians who go to this church and go to other churches, as I interact with Christians in my school classes, I can tell you the truth. 
for some odd reason, right now, American Christians feel this overwhelming feeling that the worst thing that could be is a burden. So we smile. But we don't share anything. I don't want to be a burden. I mean, how many times I have heard that? Pastor, I don't want to be a burden. Can I talk? I'm sorry for all the texts I've sent you. I don't want to be a burden. Let me tell you something. So just a couple of generations ago, here out west, the fact is, if you couldn't do the work to survive, what happened? You didn't survive. Burdens did not last. Children with problems did not survive. Men who couldn't do the work did not survive. Women who became sick did not survive. If you could not do it, you did not survive. That is a terrible mentality when it comes to a church. The only thing I can see is this. God has gifted people for the sole purpose of helping the body, for bearing burdens. Pride is the only reason I can think of for why we would not ask for help when God has placed us in a situation where he has surrounded us with it. So now we see the questions are still there. Just because we have this experience where things have gone sour doesn't mean suddenly the standard's lowered. No. The psalmist knows this. He knows that that it's still the requirement. We must walk perfectly. We must be holy. We must be obedient on our way there. But my experience has been tragedy, hardship, failure, sin. So what do I do with this? What do I do with my experience? And what do I do with this demand? Well, as we work through this psalm, we'll find out. So the longest chapter in the Bible, the most organized psalm in the book of Psalms, goes starts at the top of a mountain and then takes us down to the pit of despair. Have you ever found yourself there? Have you ever found yourself where the feeling was that the joy you once had in Christ was foolish? Or perhaps the joy you once had in Christ was a dream from another time? But the reality of despair does not negate what is found at the top of the mountain. The weight of being holy, the weight of being obedient suddenly do- doesn't suddenly disappear. It has to be answered. Now, I don't want to leave you on that. So let me give you hope. The weight of holiness and the weight of perfect obedience has been answered in Jesus Christ. The help we need can be found through faith in Christ. Jesus meets the need of being undefiled. He meets the need of perfect obedience. He is the help we need both to get there and to find the direction and to have the enablement. And if we go with him, we will be set free from shame. We will not be hypocrites. We will not be forsaken. So put your faith there if you haven't already. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this introduction and how it hits on, Father, 
such a, a, a reality of life. And Lord, I pray we would hear and feel the weight of the need for perfect holiness, and we would feel the weight for the need for perfect obedience, and then we would find the relief of it in Christ. And we would find the relief from our failures and our struggles and our shame in Christ. And I pray you would bless our time as a church as we walk through this psalm, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.